The other month I met a bloke who is getting out of a cult. It may not be technically a cult, but at the best it's a Christianish group with some really bad teaching. He'd been committed to this movement for about a decade and was fully invested. In fact, he would occasionally preach and teach there. And it was while preparing a sermon that God revealed the problems, that the doctrine of this group was the opposite to what the Bible says. Now, what this guy is now dealing with is, who can I trust? For a decade, he thought this group was teaching the truth, but it wasn't. And so now he doesn't know who to believe. Who can he trust? That might be a question you've grappled with. Can I trust any church to be teaching what the Bible says? It's a fair enough question. Uh, With so much good stuff, but also so much dodgy stuff available online, that might be a question you've grappled with. Who can I trust? Everyone seems to say things that contradicts each other. I wonder, though, whether for more of us, the question is, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible about God, eternity and salvation? Does the Bible tell me the truth about Jesus or is it just made up? There are very few questions that would compete with this in importance. Can you trust the Bible? And this is really the question at stake in 2 Peter. Uh, The reason Peter wrote this letter is to encourage and remind believers to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. This is what he says in verse 12, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. This letter is written so Christians will grow in grace, make every effort to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus. And he's writing this reminder in the context of false teaching. People telling believers, hey, Jesus isn't coming again. Jesus isn't coming to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new. That's what was being taught. Uh, We read this in chapter 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, that's the days they were in 2,000 years ago, it's the days we're still in now, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Uh, These false teachers are saying, trust us, Don't trust Peter and the apostles. They are wrong about Jesus. So just coast. Don't worry about living a godly life because it doesn't matter. Jesus isn't coming back. And so Peter's writing to combat this false teaching and show why we can trust him, why we can trust what God says in the Bible. So it seems these false teachers are accusing the apostles of making up stories about Jesus, when in fact the apostles are reporting what they saw with their own eyes. Have a look in verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we, the apostles, did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Who can you trust? Peter's saying, you can trust me. 
You can trust the other apostles because what we told you about Jesus, we saw with our own eyes. Now, we need to address an elephant in the room. An elephant most of us don't even know is here, but it is. And that's that there's a question mark over who wrote this letter. Some people say 2 Peter was not written by the Apostle Peter, though then again they say this about many of the books in the Bible. Now I don't want us to get too distracted by this, but I reckon it's worth talking about because the whole point of this passage is to trust the Bible. And one of the reasons you can trust the Bible is because it comes from eyewitnesses. This isn't stories that were told around a campfire. The New Testament comes from people who saw Jesus with their own eyes. It's a record of eyewitnesses. But if you go home today and you're on the internet and come across someone who says, oh, to Peter, no one believes it was written by the apostle. It's a cleverly devised forgery. Then you might wonder who to believe. Can you trust to Peter? Can you trust the Bible? So I think we need to briefly address this. Now, the question about who wrote 2 Peter has been around for a long time. Uh, Even in the early 300s AD, early Christian writings note that there's a bit of a question mark over this letter. One of the reasons is, in the 2nd century, so well after Peter was dead and buried, there were some things written by people, and they said, oh, this was actually written by the apostle. But no one took these writings seriously as if they were really written by Peter. Everyone knew they were kind of like fan fiction uh, or or like a historical novel. Imagine if Peter wrote something like this. But because in the second century there were quite a few documents pretending or saying that they were written by Peter, some people thought, well, hang on, what about 2 Peter? Maybe 2 Peter is also one of these just pretending to be written by the apostle. So not only were there some clearly fake documents going around claiming to be written by the Apostle, but also 1 and 2 Peter are quite different. Even in our English translations, they sound and feel very different. Different enough that you might wonder, are they really written by the same person? Now that's one side of the story, one bit of evidence. The other thing is, 2 Peter was considered authoritative scripture very early on. Very early on, it was counted as belonging to the books of the Bible because lots of Christians did think it was written by the apostle. They thought this because it was around very early and there are reasons why 2 Peter is different from 1 Peter. One reason is it's written at the end of Peter's life. After he'd travelled the world, he was no longer just a a fishing bloke from Galilee. He was now travelled, he travelled the whole world. He'd spent time in Rome. In fact, we think this letter was written whilst he was in Rome. And what's more, just like as we saw with Galatians the other week, here's the shock. Neither Paul nor Peter physically wrote the letters. They almost definitely had scribes do the writing. And in the ancient world, when you hired a scribe, not a a copyist, not someone who would copy down, you know, word for word something, some other document because they didn't have photocopiers, but a a scribe who, who wrote letters for somebody, their job included improving on your words. 
fixing up grammar and syntax, making it sound better. And I think this may well explain the differences of these letters, that it was written by who it claims to be, from the eyewitness Peter himself, with the help of a different scribe at a much later stage of his life. So that's the elephant in the room. So why should we listen to Peter and the apostles? Well, because they're eyewitnesses. And what is it that they saw and heard? Well, loads of things about Jesus. They spent years with him. But the event Peter brings up is what's called the transfiguration. This is how Peter summarises the event. Verse 17. He, that's Jesus, received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. What did Peter see? With his own eyes, he saw Jesus' glory and power. And with his own ears, he heard the voice of the Father, this is my son. Now remember what Peter's doing. He's taking on false teachers who are saying, Jesus is not going to return with power. He's coming in power is how verse 16 describes it. False teachers saying, Jesus is not going to return to judge. Now, why do you reckon Peter makes a point of the transfiguration? Out of all the things he saw, why this one? Why not when Jesus kicked the money changers out of the temple? That shows that Jesus is really angry about sin. Why not the resurrection? In Acts 17, we're going to look at Acts 17 next term. In Acts 17, it's the resurrection that Paul says declares Jesus to be the judge. Why does Peter go for the transfiguration and not the resurrection? Well, I reckon we get a feel for it when we read a fuller description of what Peter saw. So keep a finger in 2 Peter in your Bible and turn back to Matthew chapter 17. So Matthew 17, if you've got one of these black Bibles uh, from the welcome table, it's on page 687, Matthew 17. All right, Matthew 17. After six days, that's six days after Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, changed. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Why does Peter choose this event 
to counter the false teachers. I reckon it's because even though the resurrection and ascension of Jesus are are astounding, and theologically they show Jesus is the risen and ruling king, as those events happened, as Peter saw them with his own eyes, Jesus looked fairly normal. In the, in the resurrection, even as he ascended to heaven, he didn't shine with his eternal divine glory. And secondly, at the resurrection and the ascension, God the Father didn't speak from heaven. Yes, there were angels at the resurrection and ascension, but not the voice of God. When is the one moment when heaven is rolled back and the the curtains are open and the glorious power of Jesus, the glorious power with which he'll return, when is the one time it's visibly revealed at the transfiguration? And Peter saw it with his own eyes. So who should you trust? The false teachers who weren't there or Peter and the others who were. Now, the eyewitness argument is pretty good, isn't it? When you're able to talk with the eyewitnesses. It was pretty good in the first century when you could go and ask any of the followers of Jesus who were alive and you could ask them, did this really happen? The eyewitness argument worked then, but 2,000 years have passed. Why should we believe Peter's eyewitness testimony? I reckon there are a few reasons, and I'll recommend some books at the end that go into a few. But for me, the number one reason is Peter and the apostles were willing to die for what they'd seen. As far as we know, the majority of the apostles, as well as other disciples who'd witnessed Jesus in the flesh, they were killed because they believed he was God, that he'd been raised to life and ascended to heaven and was going to return, will return, to judge the living and the dead and make all things new. They were willing to die because this is what they'd seen with their own eyes, heard with their own ears. Now, this is different from a modern-day martyr. Plenty of people die for causes they believe in. But if Peter was willing to die for Jesus, as far as we know, he was executed not long after writing this letter, executed under Emperor Nero. Peter was willing to die for Jesus. If he knew this was a lie, if he'd made up this story, why would he have thrown away his life? You might be willing to die for something you believe to be true, even if you're wrong. But I don't know whether you'd die for something you knew is a lie. So even though it's been 2,000 years, we can't talk to those eyewitnesses themselves. I think their testimony, the things written about Jesus that have been pulled together into what we now call the New Testament, there's good reason to take them as trustworthy. But there's a second reason we can know the truth. A second reason why, and remember the specific issue Peter's dealing with, a second reason why we can believe Jesus will come with power. And that's because it's what the Old Testament says. Now, in chapter 2, we get into what 
the Old Testament says. Where does the Old Testament say Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead? That's for next week. Today's question is, who can you trust? You can trust the Old Testament, the prophets of old, because what they say is God's word. Have a look at verse 19. So we're back in 2 Peter 1 now. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an important question for us today. Uh, Some Christians say they are New Testament Christians. Uh, Some churches never read or teach from the first 39 books of the Bible. And let's admit it, the Old Testament can be pretty hard going. It can be hard to understand, especially some of the names of peoples and places. It can be hard to work out what some of the events mean and some of the things recorded are gut-wrenchingly traumatic, like Genesis 19. Why should we listen to, let alone trust, the Old Testament? And do you notice that the instruction, the command of this passage is, is there in verse 19, pay attention to the prophets, to what we call the Old Testament. It's not just have it in your Bible. It's not just read it sometimes, it's pay attention to it. Why should we? It's because it's God's word. The scriptures, the Bible, isn't just something someone made up. It's not a fairy tale. Kids, the Bible doesn't belong in the fictions part of the library because it's from God. Now, this passage is getting at the dual authorship of Scripture, what's sometimes called concurrence. There are two wrong ways you can think about who wrote the Bible. One wrong way is to say it's just people making things up. It's merely a human book. The other wrong way is to say it's dictated from God. Now, there are a a few parts of the Bible that explicitly say God said, write down these exact words, but almost all the Bible isn't someone taking down dictation. The human involved isn't like your phone's voice-to-text recognition. No, there's dual authorship. The human authors, the prophets, were really writing their own words. And at the same time, they were completely carried by the Holy Spirit. So their words are God's words, and God's words are their words. And this explains why different parts of the Bible sound different. If it was just dictation, it should all sound the same. It's why the different books of the prophets have a different feel to them. When we come to the New Testament, it's why the the four Gospels are different from each other. They were genuinely written by four different authors, each carried along by the Holy Spirit. This dual authorship also helps explain some limitations of the Bible. Some people get worked up because some of the maths in the Bible isn't precise. For example, and I know this is nerdy, but I'm a nerd, The ratio, you've got to listen to this one, it takes you back to kind of year eight maths. The ratio of the diameter to the circumference of a metal bowl in the temple does not equal pi. 
But guess what? It was written by human authors who maybe, like some of us, weren't so good at maths and only knew pi to, well, it's about three. Or there are other parts of the Bible that assume an ancient Near Eastern three-tier cosmos. They don't write as we would today, knowing that the earth revolves around the sun, or that our solar system is just one of the millions and trillions out there. But this genuine humanity of the Bible doesn't mean we can't trust it. It doesn't mean the authors were just making things up, that they wrote their own interpretation of things. No, it means dual authorship. Just as 2 Peter says, God is truly the author, and at the same time the ancient authors, with their ways of saying things, are also the authors. Why can we trust the Old Testament? Because it's God's word. Which means he is the ultimate author, the ultimate speaker. And one of the reasons we believe this is because it's what the apostles and Jesus, the same Jesus who shone with glory, it's what they believed and trusted. And so if this is the case, if we are to trust the Bible, what are we to do with this? We play, we pay close attention to what it says. And how do we do this? Well, three things to put playing, paying close attention into practice. Read, study, and meditate on God's word. Reading, that just means reading the Bible like you do any book. Just open it up and read it. Read it at your normal reading speed. Don't stress too much over the details or questions. Just let it wash over you. You might prefer listening to reading. There are great audio Bibles around. This is where planning, say, to read the whole Bible over one or two years fits in. This is where our practice of reading through parts of the Bible that are unrelated to the sermon comes from. We want to be a church that reads and hears God's word. But God's word is rich, it's treasure. So we don't only read, we study taking a bit more time, asking questions of the Bible. Why does it say this? What does it teach about God and about the way of salvation? Uh, This is one of the things we model and learn how to do in our Bible study groups during the week. In Bible study, we have booklets with questions, not answers. One of our goals with Bible study groups is to learn how to study the Bible ourselves. And finally, meditating on the Bible. It's not like Buddhist meditations where you empty your mind. It's about filling your mind with the Bible, taking time to prayerfully reflect on a few sentences, to enjoy and hear deeply God's voice. This is where you might want to get into memorizing verses from the Bible so they work their way deep into your mind and heart. But what if you're not sure? What if you don't know if you can trust the Bible? I reckon the best way to see whether the Bible's trustworthy is to stick with us at church. Keep coming and listening to God's word read and taught. Ask questions. If you've got doubts or questions, ask. I've often had questions about whether the Bible's true. Church is the best place to discuss these things. And I did say I was going to recommend some books, so if you want to dig deeper into whether you can trust the Bible, two books to recommend. They're both short and easy to read. Uh, The first is 
Can I Really Trust the Bible by Barry Cooper? I reckon it's the easier of the two to read. He's great. He's a funny writer. Uh, This book really pushes into the God's word question. Does God really speak in the Bible? Is there a divine and human author? That's Can I Really Trust the Bible by Barry Cooper. Uh, The other one is Why Trust the Bible? People are not all that creative when it comes to these titles, are they? Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. It gets a little bit more into the details. It works through more of the specific questions you might have, like translations. Why are there lots of them? Can you trust the translations? Copying. The Bible was copied by hand, not by a computer. We can't even trust computer copying, but you can't. Can we trust things that were just copied by hand? Uh, both of these books, uh, they're just a few few dollars if you get them as an e-book. Uh, they're not much more in print. Who can you trust? Uh, the bloke I met, met the other month. I don't blame him for not knowing. But interestingly, he knew he could trust the Bible. Because it's written by eyewitnesses. And it's the very word of God.